0: everyone
1: welcome back to the two body problem podcast where we discuss academic relationships i'm sarah and i'm aksha and today we're going to be chatting with two of our friends rachel and jerry so let's get started hi hello so good to see you guys wow it is
2: Wonderful to see both of you. My <laughs> oh my, it's been a while.
1: <laughs> it has been. Thank you so much for being here. Happy
3: to be here. I've enjoyed the first couple episodes of the podcast, so I'm uh, honored to be to be a
1: subject. Oh, I'm glad. So maybe we can start by having both of you introduce yourselves um, so that everyone knows who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, I am Rachel Kirchen. Um, who I am, what I do. Let's
3: see, uh, I grew up in Rochester, New York. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in physics and a PhD in material science from MIT, which is how I know Sarah. Uh, We were cohort mates, classmates, whatever you say. Uh, We studied for calls together and hung out plenty and all that good stuff. And I am currently a postdoctoral fellow at Carnegie Mellon University.
2: And I'm Jerry Wong. I am currently an assistant professor in civil and environmental engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. I grew up in Chicago, Uh, very much like Rachel. I did my undergrad in physics. In fact, that's how we met. Uh, And uh, I got to spend a really wonderful portion of life uh, living in the same grad dorm as Sarah. It it was a very brief, but (laughs) really wonderful part of life. And also got to spend a lot of time with Akshay in that very same grad dorm. So a lot of wonderful memories there.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to have both of you on this podcast because I think everyone we've talked to so far has actually left academia. Um, (laughs) And so I think you both will be the first ones uh, representing those of us who continue to stay on in academia after grad school. So we're really uh, interested to hear your perspectives. So how, so Jerry, you alluded to the fact that you met in undergrad. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that?
2: Yeah, sure. So the Rachel and I were both physics majors. We The very first class that we took together was intro mechanics in the physics sequence. Uh, I am certainly not a back row of the classroom kind of individual, but I'm certainly not a first row of the classroom kind of individual. That is the kind of individual that Rachel is. So my first recollection of Rachel was one of those people who sat in the front row and answered every freaking question. And I was more of like (laughs) a fifth or sixth row kind of individual in a classroom with like maybe 20 rows. So... I was no K student. Rachel was an incredible student. What
3: he's not saying is that he actually found me pretty irritating at first for that, because of that, uh, that characteristic. And it so, was a little bit later that we became friends.
1: Jerry, I have a question. Um, was Rachel also knitting while simultaneously answering every single question correctly in the front row?
2: Yeah, so that that really accentuated the uh, annoying is certainly an, an uncharitable way to characterize the sensation of being annoyed, but it's perhaps not an unfair word either for the for the early going. In that same semester that we were taking intro mechanics, we were also both taking uh, multivariable calculus, and I certainly did find it annoying, if not you know a little bit enviable, that there is this individual. Who is capable of reasoning with great facility about Stokes theorem and divergence theorem and reasoning in high-dimensional spaces while literally knitting for the entirety of class. It, it, it did strike me as, as quite unusual and maybe <laughs> this, even annoying.
1: This also impressed me about Rachel. I would I would not say that I was annoyed. Um definitely not. I was like, wow how like, this is, this is a level of knitting that I aspire to because when I knit, I have to look at my needles and I've tried, I've really tried like, okay if I'm watching TV or something like, it's just too hard. I get messed up. And the thing is I'm just like a fundamentally
3: fidgety person. Like I'm sitting here like twiddling this stick of lip balm right now. And it's yeah. like, honestly, if I, if I had teachers in high school who didn't let me knit in class and I actually had a harder time focusing in those classes and I think they ended up regret- regretting that decision because I would sit there and like drum my fingers or tear up small pieces of paper. And I wouldn't even realize I was doing it. I just like have all this like fidgety energy and, and knitting is a way that I can channel it into something, something actual that actually creates things that sometimes people want.
1: <laughs> um, so wh- what year of undergrad did you meet? When were you... Yeah. So this, these classes that we were taking together was, was
3: first semester of freshman year. And I would say we were certainly like aware of each other's existence. Um, Cause it's, you know, I mean, a lot of people take those classes, but you sort of are generally aware of all the other folks in them. I would say it was more sophomore year that we started to become really good friends when we started to be in the, some of the smaller classes together in particular, uh, one math class that so many people, it was this uh, Math and Methods for Engineering, I forget the title, the actual title of the class, but something along those lines, you know, learning Mathematica and and that sort of stuff, um, that uh, it ended up being a class of four people. So everyone else dropped. Um, And so that was a class where we really got to know each other a lot better and and became really close friends um, through that. Although we didn't start dating until a couple
2: of years
1: later. I see, I see.
2: Yeah, I see a comment on the smallness of that class, A pet peeve of mine about engineering nowadays is that math methods in engineering has almost fallen out of vogue as a thing that people ought to be learning. I think it really ought to be a part of the undergraduate and graduate uh, engineering curriculum. But in the context of having made uh, a great friend for life, I'm glad that there were not a ton of people taking (laughs) math methods and engineering that particular semester.
1: (laughs) So your kind of like parallel career journeys I guess you had two points in which you were trying to find your next position in the same place as the other person right like from undergrad to grad school and then whatever you know is beyond grad school right
3: yeah so uh we actually and this is terrible advice do not do this uh, but we actually started dating our senior year of undergrad after submitting graduate school applications and before having heard back about any of the decisions. Um, so I do not advise anyone out there to do this. Um, however, uh, we were very, very fortunate in the fact that MIT was among the few places that we actually had overlap in our applications and was the, among those the only one that we were both accepted to. Um, And I I can honestly say that I think even if we had not started dating, there's a very, very good chance we would have both ended up there. Um, I think, you know, we probably would have given more serious consideration to some other contenders, uh, but I think there's a very, very good chance that even if we had still just been good friends, we would have both ended up at MIT. So we were very, very fortunate um, that I don't think either of us felt like we were sort of compromising anything or not going to the place that we most wanted to go in order to sustain a relationship, um, and that was truly through complete luck.
2: <laughs> I say I was very fortunate. Rachel got into MIT material science, you know, quite early on in that um, in that senior spring, and uh, I remember just waiting around, hoping like, oh my goodness, well, I I, I hope something comes through, and I-, I certainly felt lucky as a duck to get uh, some positive news from MIT mechanical engineering, but. Um, the story of that spring was Rachel getting in everywhere, and and from a very early point in the season, that which is
3: was not literally true. Well,
2: it's it's only true statistically. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um. So were you both really set on going to grad school, or were you you know considering like other things too?
3: I think we were both pretty set on going to grad school. I so I ended up I got a scholarship and ended up. Um, taking a year abroad before starting my PhD at MIT, I felt pretty strongly that I, it was more like a wanderlust kind of situation, like I had grown up in the Northeast, gone to undergrad in the Northeast and decided I was going to go to grad school in the Northeast US and nothing against the Northeast, but it was like, okay, I feel like I want to explore a little bit. And so I think Mm -hmm. if this, if the scholarship hadn't worked out for me, I end up doing a one year master's degree in the UK. Um, but if, if that had not worked out, I was looking at other kind of short term, you know, like year long opportunities to do some sort of volunteer work or, or um, things like that. So if that um, that particular academic option hadn't worked out, I think I, I would have uh, certainly very seriously considered still deferring um, grad school for a year to do something just somewhere else in the world. Um, but I think we were both quite confident that we were going to do PhDs.
1: I see.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And so then when you got to the end of grad school and you had to make a decision about what do we want to do after this, were you pretty set on like academia? Or did you
2: consider other things as well?
3: I think Jerry kind of led the way on that one to some extent.
2: Well, just by virtue of you having gotten that very fancy scholarship and being one year further back in grad school, I had to encounter those questions a year (laughs) earlier and come to some conclusions. Although I feel like we've had very similar feelings about this. Academia held at the time and continues to hold right now a lot of appeal because while an academic job is just another job, like the gazillions of other jobs out there, it has some pros and and some cons that are unique to academia and one of the real shining pros is the chance to work with students in an advising, mentoring teaching capacity uh, both through the research and the educational mission and that's one shining probe academia that continues to shine so brightly that I don't have any regrets in the slightest about doing this job.
3: Yeah, and for me, I think I was, I was uncertain for longer. I knew that I enjoyed research and I enjoyed, um, another thing that I personally really value about academia is the, the kind of relative to almost any other job, insane amount of schedule flexibility that you have as an academic. Um, so those were things that were really valuable to me, but, um, I was someone who placed a, a really high value on good teaching and wanted to be very certain that I would like teaching and feel like I would be good at it before deciding that that was a direction that I wanted to go. And I didn't actually have a chance to really dive into that until my last year of grad school. So as a fifth year, I served as a TA uh, for one of the core graduate courses that both Sarah and I took as first years. Um, and and it was that experience, honestly, that really, really cemented um, my idea that, that academia would be a good path for me because I just absolutely loved being a TA and, and felt like I was pretty good at it. Like the students sort of liked me and and that I was, you know, decent at communicating these ideas and just, just had an absolute blast doing it. Um, And so that was what for me really cemented, like, okay, this is something that I could see myself, could, could see myself really liking. I feel like I could be good at the, at the parts, good at, good at the, at the important parts and, and, uh, enjoy the parts that you're supposed to enjoy and and be sufficiently competent at the parts that nobody enjoys that it would work out all right.
1: <laughs> and that's really cool. I think that you were so thoughtful about, you know, would teaching be something that you'd be really into? because I think for a lot of professors, it's just such a thing on the back burner and they don't care. and oh, really impact are- students.
3: Yeah, I think there are a lot of academics who don't really like to teach, and I think that's really sad, and I wouldn't want to be such a person. Um, I, I enjoy research, and, and I place value on that as well, absolutely, but my personal feeling is that if, I, if it had turned out that I didn't enjoy teaching, I would have pursued something where that wasn't a big part of the job, whether that's a research professorship or perhaps a position at a national lab. There are paths for people who don't want teaching to be a big part of it, but really want to do research, and I think probably the prestige of tenure track positions is what pushes a lot of people towards doing that anyway, even if they don't enjoy teaching. Um, but I don't think that would have been enough of a draw for me to pursue it if it, if I weren't confident that I would like that part of the job.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And it's, um, it's cool that that was something that you thought about. And I wish that more people also thought about that aspect. Um, yeah, I think for me, it was almost the opposite. Like I liked teaching so much that I would not want it to be just part of what I do. Like I want it to be almost the majority of what I do. And I, it felt like, you know, I, I maybe would like teaching at the college level, like being a professor, but having to do research would definitely not be worth it. Did you ever think about like
3: either a teaching professorship at a university or like looking for a position at like a liberal arts college or
1: something like that? So, um, yeah. Fun fact, when the pandemic started and um, we realized that like we weren't going to be able to take the positions in Singapore that we thought we'd be able to take, I applied for like 15 adjunct positions and heard back from literally no one I think it was just a bad I mean the start of a pandemic is probably just a bad time to apply actually that's not true like maybe like three weeks ago or two weeks ago I heard back from like one place that were like we need someone to teach a chemistry lab and I'm like okay I have a job now um but yeah I mean it I think because I like working with younger students Hmm. it wouldn't be like my first choice to teach at the college level but yeah definitely something that would be fun to do at some point. In my yeah, life. well, that makes
0: total sense. And I think I find that the more I get, the more I teach, the younger the children that I want to teach are. Like, That's so interesting. When I was at the start of grad school, I could totally see myself teaching a graduate class, and then towards the end of grad school, I was like, oh, I, I would want to teach like a 1st year undergraduate class, and now I'm working with a lot of high school students, and I'm like, oh, actually, this is an interesting age group to work with.
1: <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, so in terms of this process of basically going to grad school and then um, doing a postdoc and then becoming a professor, do you wanna talk maybe a little bit about that pathway? Cause I'm not sure that everyone who might be listening to this knows like the academic career trajectory.
3: Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, the first step is to get your PhD. Um, and and then typically what happens well, after the, that-
2: actually- Although that sounds very straightforward, that's not necessarily the first step.
3: Oh, in... sure. I mean, well, how far back do you want to go?
2: <laughs> well, yeah, you, you get your...
3: The vast majority of academics have PhDs. You I don't get, think that's an unfair You get your kindergarten certificate
2: of completion and then you work your way. <laughs> I guess perhaps I understood the question a little bit differently if we were to speak from the perspective of somebody who is currently in the midst of their PhD adventure, the first steps in the process kind of come, can come before you actually get your PhD formally.
3: Oh sure, in terms of when you need to be thinking about it. So, okay, with the caveat that of course not everybody does exactly this, a very typical trajectory is that one would get a PhD and then very often do what's called a postdoc, which is anywhere from sort of one to let's say N, because it varies a lot depending on the field. Um, years of, of essentially serving as a research staff member. So your your primary job is doing research, um, probably doing some mentorship of, of other um, graduate students in the lab, but it's it's not a teaching oriented role. The goal is to, you know, get, get some more research experience often in a somewhat different field from what you did your PhD in um, to sort of broaden your horizons, uh, publish a few more papers, all of this kind of stuff. And then, um, and then, you know, depending, there are, there are many tracks within academia. Um, what, what Jerry is doing and, and the types of things that I have been applying for um, is, is one track that is perhaps the best known in some cases, which is, which is seeking a tenure track professorship, um, which means, you know, typically after something like six to nine years, uh, if everything goes well of, of doing this job, you're granted tenure which means loosely that you can't be fired unless you do something really, really bad. Um, And and the the original principle behind this was to enable sort of intellectual freedom and have people not worry about pursuing potentially crazy-seeming ideas because this is the way that we can sort of move forward the intellectual research enterprise. Um, However, tenure-track professorships are not at all the only track within academia. We've sort of alluded in passing to a couple others in the conversation already. So there's what's called a teaching track professorship. Um, And then on the sort of flip side, if you will, there's also a research professorship um, where you have very, very little, if any teaching as part of the role and you're only doing research. So what, uh, what, what Jerry has is a tenure-track professor um, position, which has a mix of research and teaching. And many people often joke that the job of a tenure-track professor is more accurately described as the job of two to three people for that reason. Um, but uh, it means you get to stick your stick your hands in a lot of pots, so to speak, uh, which which can be fun if you can uh, if you can juggle that many balls. Um, so I guess to make it a little bit more specific to our case. Um, Jerry actually slightly bucked the, the uh, standard trajectory that I outlined by getting a tenure track professorship offer straight after his PhD, um, which which happens. It's it's pretty unusual and and um, and it depends a lot on the field. It varies a lot depending uh, on I'll the field. How how I've never this been an ins-
2: individual in say biology. Oh yeah, this never happens. This. So right. It's it's very it, field dependent. Yeah.
3: So yeah. anyway, um, Jerry's quite a hot shot and got a tenure track offer straight out of his PhD. Um, however, because we wanted to remain in the same geographic location and, you know, and for the sort of other reasons that I outlined of sort of the benefits of doing a postdoc in terms of getting research exposure in broader fields, he actually took a year-long postdoc in the MIT chemical engineering department uh, while I finished up my PhD. Um, And that also gave me a year's warning to find something uh, for myself to do in Pittsburgh. Um, And I was actually able to find um, a really great postdoctoral position um, at at Carnegie Mellon at CMU, where where Jerry's faculty, um, and and so I was I was very very happy that I was able to find that and that and that worked out, um, and I've I've had some really great experiences, um, you know, doing a very different kind of research and and mentoring some great students um, doing that, and and maybe I'll let Jerry talk about his experience now because I've been talking for a while. <laughs>
2: I I think that's very true to the, to the whole life cycle of, uh, of this process. Um, I'm not really sure what detail I can add to that. That was very comprehensive.
1: Okay. So when you were um, kind of deciding your next steps after grad school, I know a lot of academic couples end up being on like the other side of the country from each other, or even the other side of the world. Were, were you pretty set on being in the same place or um, if it so happened about like getting different offers, would you have considered like living in two different places?
3: I think again, uh, perhaps largely due to luck, um, it didn't really come to that in the sense that, you know I obviously first looked for things in, in the Pittsburgh area, which, which academically would, um, Carnegie Mellon and University of Pittsburgh are the two sort of major research institutions in the area. There are some other small colleges and universities, but those are kind of the main two that someone would look towards. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I, I started kind of, you know, emailing faculty and, and things trying to figure out, you know, who was looking to take on a postdoc, and, and um, ended up finding a group that I felt was a really, really good fit for, for, you know, my interests and experience. Um, so it's hard to say what would have happened if, if I hadn't found that position. Um, and, you know, what, you know, that I'm sure there would have been some, some tricky conversations about, you know, how far apart are we willing to live from each other, you um, you know for are we are we open to to being long distance for sort of an indefinite period of time you know when i was in england it was long distance but it had a very very clear expiration date which i think made it a lot easier than a lot of other couples academic couples who have to do long distance relationships because it was like okay you know well this kind of sucks we're in different time zones we're far away we don't get to see each other that much Mm -hmm. but it has a very clear end date because then we're both going to be at mit at the end of it um and so compared to a lot of other long distance experiences, we had it quite easy. And I think it would be a lot harder if it's like, well, we don't really know when we're gonna be able to live in the same place, um, but we're deciding to prioritize our careers right now. I feel very fortunate that we didn't end up having to have that conversation.
0: I remember uh, maybe about a year and a half ago, we, were, we had this Google map pulled out and we were trying to like pin down places where I had I was going to apply for postdoc positions and was mm-hmm. going to apply for different things also. I think, I, st- I think we still have that map although it never really came to anything. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think the pandemic, um, kind of, yeah, changed a lot of our career plans. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: So it's, 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 interesting though, because I feel like there was a version of what we were going to do after PhD, after our PhDs, which, are, which would have had us living in Rhode Island. And then, there was a version of it, which would have had us living in Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the current version where we are here in Boston.
1: Right, right.
2: The two culinary capitals of the world. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. So, Jerry, I'm wondering, what's a stereotype about being a professor that you found out was not true once you became a professor? Because I definitely have a lot of things in my head that I'm like, oh, well, this is what it would be like to be a professor or this is, I don't know, how professors do things. So what do you think?
2: Wow, what a neat question. If you don't mind me turning the question into a question, could you share one or two stereotypes (laughs) that come to mind right away? Uh, I've got some inkling of an answer to this question, but I would love to hear What are the first two things that come to your mind when you think of professor stereotypes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first, I definitely think of this like, um, okay, and I think this comes from being at an age where not many of my friends are professors. Like I actually, I think you're the first person I know personally to become a professor. And so I think of professors as people who are inaccessible and, um, I can't imagine them being social because I don't interact with professors in a social way. And I know they are, it's just, it feels outside of my um, like people who I would socialize with. It's like, okay, it's like this, when you're scrolling through Facebook and you get a Facebook recommendation and it's a professor, you're like, Oh my God, a professor has Facebook. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that.
2: Yeah. So that's a, that's a neat observation. And I'll say that, um, speaking personally, I I still feel surprised when I get those Facebook recommendations too. Uh, It it is, it it can be totally jarring, but no, you know, we have uh, faculty lunches and meetings and all the same things that, that you would have, you know, serving on in various positions as a graduate student. And there are those individuals who we'll tuck away a couple leftover sandwiches on a plate and you kind of know what the trajectory of those is gonna, is gonna be. So a lot of that is, is very similar to being a grad student.
3: Although I will say, I once observed Jerry and another faculty member take a bunch of leftover sandwiches from a seminar and bring it to a grad student office and just give the grad students free Aww. sandwiches, which was really sweet.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a fun, capa- I mean, we were doing that back in grad school too, uh, <laughs> uh, but that's a fun possibility nowadays. I'll say... Well,
3: not literally nowadays, but... (laughs) Not literally nowadays.
2: I'll say one stereotype that I don't think I really understood when I was a grad student and I have a better understanding for now and that I would urge everybody who's listening to this podcast who's ever had this thought cross their mind to just know the, the down, dirty truth. If you don't get an answer to an email message... It has not the slightest bit to do with you and everything to do with how email is just fundamentally a corrupt and broken medium that is not really a, it's not a real linkage mechanism between real people that's designed for the 21st century. I made a sort of commitment, which I have not- It's not
3: going to become an ad for Slack.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I made a commitment to myself, which I have not been able to- to keep to over the last couple of years that, you know, for all the times I had reached out to people as a grad student, hoping for for data or a conversation or some some advice and not gotten a response back. And I just felt totally horrible about it. I made this commitment that I would Mm -hmm. never, you know, miss an email as uh, with my new set of responsibilities. And from time to time I do miss an email or respond to something much much later than I wish I had. So I would hope that everybody who's listening understands that if you don't get a message, the earnest and goodness truth is just sending a follow-up message and then <laughs> three more after that can be a super helpful thing. It doesn't have the slightest bit to do with who anybody you're trying to reach out to thinks of you or your work or your personality or, or anything like that. So that's, you- that's a stereotype that I would like to dispel. <laughs>
1: That's really helpful. So you would encourage people to not be afraid to send a follow-up, like don't feel like you're bothering the person, if it's been a reasonable amount of time?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Email is just such a bad medium for communication. And we all kind of feel it. A lot of faculty life, there's a lot of email management. It's sort of the fourth prong of work alongside research, teaching, and service. It's email. And it's really not something to feel bashful about, sending a follow-up email or three.
1: (laughs) That's good to know. That's definitely something that I, if I didn't get a reply, I'll feel, oh, I don't want to bother them. I I imagine people opening my follow-up email and being like angry. Um, oh, totally, yeah. <laughs> I've definitely done that. Imagine that, I mean, not done that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I totally felt angry. <laughs> I felt angry, <laughs>
3: no.
0: So, um, so now that you're both in roles which involve a bit of mentorship, I'm wondering what that experience has been like. Um, what has it been like like mentoring graduate students and undergraduates and teaching
2: I'll say that a lot of mentorship okay mentorship fundamentally fundamentally even for all the attendant transient frustrations that it comes it can come with it is fundamentally a joyful process and there's no two ways about that it is just freaking awesome so if you feel even the slightest mentally bone in your body there's a lot to like about an academic career and a lot of opportunities that are unique to academia that are awesome for that. I'll say that for myself one of the most challenging aspects of adjusting to mentorship is really understanding that what each and every unique student who I come across what they need is sometimes partially aligned with what I needed at their age or at their moment in their schooling trajectory. Uh, In some cases, what they need is really not at all what I needed when they were that age. Um, It's at a different, cast at a different level or cast from a different perspective. And so as a mentor, the onus is on you to do your absolute best to give people what they need to grow, to become better students, better thinkers, better researchers. And that may not be your own experience.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure I have anything particularly substantive to add, I think. You know, in many ways, uh, being a postdoc in a fairly large group, as the group I'm in has been, is in some sense the the most phenomenal training wheels for a faculty job that you could imagine because my advisor is very happy to be sort of open and transparent about a lot of leadership decisions because that allows him in, to delegate some of that type of work to me, which I recognize is a help to him, but it's also really, really valuable experience for me, um, both in terms of kind of leading the group writ large and also, um, being really involved in in student mentorship. And so, I, I mean, I would definitely echo what Jerry said. I think being a postdoc is obviously a somewhat different position to being a faculty member because I'm nobody's primary advisor. Um, and so it, it allows, on the one hand, I can be sort of more of a casual chummy colleague than would necessarily be completely appropriate for someone's advisor to be. But I also do have more experience in academia broadly, if not even if not in the specific field that that student's working in. And I think something that I'm very comfortable doing as a postdoc that that someone who's an advisor might be a bit more kind of rightfully hesitant to do is, is to ask the student, like, what's useful for you to get from me? Like, do you want me to be the kind of advisor who's basically telling you what I think you should do next? Or do you want me to like, do I do you want me to just be a sounding board for your thoughts about what's next? And I think, not being afraid to just ask the student what's useful um, is is in some ways a luxury that I have, that I think in some cases a primary advisor could do, uh, but in some cases that's not necessarily kind of the appropriate mode for that relationship. Um, So that's something that I've certainly been sort of (laughs) basking in, in a certain sense, Um, this ability that I can be, I am still their colleague, right? You know, when we sat on campus, we sat, I sat in offices with graduate students um, and we would eat lunch together and, and you know, play bar trivia together or whatever. Um, and I'm not like their boss in the way that their advisor is. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Jerry, do you find that you have to like try to create a certain distance between yourself and your students? Do you feel like that's something you have to work to create now that you have this title of professor?
2: Well, in the age of Zoom, it's plenty easy to... <laughs> Manufacture distance with anybody that, <laughs> that you want to. <laughs> but it's, it's a great question and a great question deserves a serious answer. I'll say that on the one hand, I probably do have a little bit more uh, distance from some practices that I engaged in very enthusiastically as a grad student. I don't remember the last time I brought a, a whole pizza or three back to, <laughs> back to my office after a seminar. So in some ways, you kind of get distanced from from some practices, but in terms of, you know, working with students and setting those professional boundaries, I feel like between different students, what they feel comfortable doing and what they really need to succeed and to thrive, it can differ a lot from student to student. Some, I really feel that a certain level of, you know, more detailed, how's your day going, how's your weekend been? So a lot of that conversation is very helpful for them, and some are are very much you know right down to business and i I respect that too so it's something that I definitely think um, can be tailor fit to each student's personality yeah yeah
1: um, we're also interested in hearing a little bit about your work life balance, so one thing actually, in talking to people on this podcast, I think I've at least realized we spend a lot of time talking about work in like not work hours, like, right. Would you agree? Like talking about work topics. Um, do you guys often spend a lot of time, like after work hours talking about work related stuff or how, how do you create that balance if one exists?
2: So in the iconic NBC sitcom Parks and Recreation, the characters Tom Haverford and Donna Meagle have a, a, a practice, a tradition that they call treat yourself. <laughs> and I'll say that for Rachel and myself, we do spend a ton of time talking about work or work-related subjects, but we also have kind of a principle of treat yourself. Like we will very indulgently on occasion talk late, late, late into the evening about some esoteric matter of, statistical physics or quantum mechanics, in general, it'll be a subject on which Rachel has thought a lot more deeply and seriously than I have. And oh, so I mind. get to I get to probe the contours of, of Rachel's thinking. So yeah, it is definitely true. You know, if you accounted for all the hours that we spend talking about work-related subjects, on some days, it probably runs up in excess of 16 hours very easily, or very quickly, on and, and some rare days. But it doesn't feel like work because when you're in treat-yourself mode, it really is it's just fun. And three hours could fly by. You know, it's a it's a Saturday evening. Three hours could fly by. It doesn't feel like work, that part.
1: So just to clarify, so when you're saying about treating yourself, that that means talking about scientific concepts that are not work related. So is it that science is talked about always sometimes it's work related <laughs> science sometimes it's not or how <laughs> not, yeah not
3: not literally always i think you know a big part of what you know we were we were very good friends for at least 2 years before we ever started dating and i think what brought us together first as friends and and i think has has certainly deepened every aspect of our relationship is a certain kind of intellectual joy and just like delight in like sort of thinking about and playing with and, and navigating some of these concepts and ideas. And so it's just something that we both find really fun. And I think, so I will say, I, no, I would not say that we talk about science all the time. Although a lot of our conversations are, are uh, perhaps inflected that way in, in some way or another. Um, it's, but definitely I think not, the, it's definitely
2: not always science. Like last night we spent like an hour talking about machine learning. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs>
3: um, No, I mean, we, so, so I think that the treat yourself mode, so to speak, is, is this, is the part that's, you know, maybe not as directly pertinent to the research work that we are doing at that moment. Very often it does take the form in, in a largely informal way of one of us teaching the other something. So I think, you know, we, we've spent so long talking and talking and learning together that we both have a, a really good sense of the kinds of things that each one is sort of good at. And, and maybe struggles a bit more with. I think one one example of this is, you know, Jerry has taken a lot more formal math courses than I have. So if I'm, you know, reading some paper, maybe, maybe it starts with I'm reading a paper and I don't understand some piece of notation, I might, you know, go, especially nowadays when we're we're only ever working 20 feet apart from each other, I might just walk down the hall into the other room and say, hey, you know, can, can you make heads or tails of, of this su- sequence of equations? I just don't quite know what what this means or what this terminology is. Um, and on the flip side, I think something that that I have a strength in um, is is perhaps a, a, a more intuitive approach. I think my my physical intuition for the t- within the types of systems that I spend a lot of time thinking about um, is is relatively strong. And so I think we complement each other really well in that sense, because I might be able to express some idea. And then maybe Jerry's the one who can actually sort of like write down the equation that that corresponds to or something like that. And so I think a lot of times we're, we're teaching each other things. You know, I think a lot about, I think a lot about electrons, broadly speaking, and just what was it two nights ago or something, we had a really long conversation, um, actually quite a bit later than I intended to stay up because I had to get up early the next day, but, but it was fun. Um, You know, where Jerry was sort of, sort of, grilling is such a negatively connoted word, but he was, you know, he was peppering me with very, very uh, wonderful questions about, you know, okay, what is, what is metallic bonding? You know, what, you know, could you, could you have something that happens like this? Or like, what does it mean when we say this? Or like, why do, why do electrons in these orbitals do that? You know, so I think we, we really enjoy learning from each other and then also occasionally going on these sort of fantastical deep dives that's not necessarily related to either of our work, but we just kind of enjoy learning together as well.
1: It's interesting because, you know, I think that like mine and Akshay's conversations, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think times that we talk like really a lot about like one scientific concept, it's usually some in some way related to teaching.
0: I think we sometimes <laughs> talk about how would you teach the scientific concept.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah like yeah. relating. Well, really I think we've, we've
3: actually started having more conversations like that, especially since, you know, Jerry is actually teaching, he is the, the instructor of record for courses now. And, and I've had the chance to give a couple of guest lectures, one in his course, a couple in my advisor's courses. Um, and, and so I think, you know, obviously we, we had some teaching experience from being teaching assistants in graduate school, but I think now that, now that it's something that's certainly for Jerry happening more regularly, and, and fortunately for me still happening sometimes, um, you know, I, I remember one specific thing where I, I gave a guest lecture in Jerry's course last semester, um, so he gave a, he gave, was giving a course that was primarily focused on molecular dynamics um, and, and the type of simulation that I do a lot of work in is called density functional theory and and um, density functional theory has a really important kind of informing role to molecular dynamics it provides certain parameters that are really important and so you know I gave this talk about the basics of density functional theory and, and attempted to essentially explain the basics of quantum mechanics in probably 20 minutes um, and and which was, which was, I think by and large went all right, but we spent probably almost as long as the guest lecture went later debriefing about, you know, how could how could I have, I'd have built up to this idea better? Or did I really need to introduce that particular notation to get across this basic idea? Or we spent probably at least as long as, probably longer than I spent explaining this idea, mm-hmm. deconstructing how I might've been able to explain it better. <laughs> um, so I think we do have some of those conversations as well, because while we both really love the research and the scientific ideas, you know, as, as we touched on earlier, teaching is something that's that's super important to both of us too.
2: And I'll say, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest, actually, and Sarah, that you guys spend uh, a lot of conversation time talking about those things. Oh, and for
1: sure.
3: <laughs> my oh
2: my, would I love to be a fly on the wall for some of those conversations, <laughs> knowing how both of you think about it. Well, I
1: think
3: especially like something that neither of us has a lot of experience with, although we both have a little bit, is, is teaching it to younger people. So I think it would be especially interesting to hear your guys' perspective on some, on, you know, how do you communicate some of these things to younger people? Because I think, you know, in my in my teaching experience, I am often able to presume familiarity with calculus, right? And, you know, obviously the, the younger you go, the
1: less likely that is. Well, my new job is essentially, how do you teach quantum mechanics to middle school and high school wow. students? So I, yeah, that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately and it's yeah really really interesting
0: wow (laughs) I think the last question that we had was about is there something kind of shifting gears is there something not science related that you guys like talk about and like have very different opinions on
3: yeah so uh I it's an interesting question and I would say it there are very few things that we that we sort of fundamentally disagree about I think in general a lot about our sort of Philosophy and outlook is is very very aligned. I will say, one thing in which we have very very different perhaps perspectives or approaches is um, in our approach to physical fitness. For me, uh, the thing that, that sort of that I enjoy the most that I find the most rewarding is basically endurance sports. Primarily, kind of individual things. You know, I've done some long distance triathlons, um, you know, cycling, swimming, running, all of this stuff. I, I did some rowing the year that I was in England. Um, and, whereas, whereas Jerry, uh, he finds much more, sort of, joy and fun through team sports, um, be Fitness that,
2: is a means to the noblest of all ends, which is glory in ball-based sports. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, and, and for whatever reason, I, I, would point to perhaps a few negative experiences as a child in team sports settings, uh, that's not something that brings me a lot of joy, um, although I can certainly, you know, get up for a, for a pickup softball game now and again, that's, I, I find much more sort of joy and satisfaction in kind of endurance sports and, and training for that kind of thing. So I think that's something that, uh, that we certainly have very different approaches on, even if our underlying values, namely that, that something of this nature is important, are, are still aligned. Yeah.
2: That's, a, that's a nice answer. I would... <laughs> What came to mind- Were you going to say cooking? (laughs) We also
3: have very different approaches to cooking. We both (laughs) like
2: to cook. Oh, we, we both love cooking. And one of us thinks, I won't say which one is which, but one of us thinks that cooking is supposed to be embracing the joy of spontaneity and creativity and originality. And the other individual thinks that cooking is the same but within the joyless confines of recipes.
1: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can guess um, from your tone which individual is you.
2: So, um, yeah, it's about whether you embrace joy in the context of joy or joy within the confines of joylessness. Mm. Ultimately, it is all about embracing joy, but we have different approaches to achieve that end.
1: Jerry just feels like the recipe is bossing him around somehow. Mm. It, it is. I was going to say, um, we similarly have different approaches to exercise. You know, I exercise and he doesn't. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Because I know you exercise sometimes. sometimes. <laughs> He'll literally stay in, in the apartment for like days on end without going outside. Unless
2: oh, R- Rachel will, will criticize me for the exact same <laughs> thought. Actually, I completely understand that. I I just like I don't have a problem
0: staying staying in the apartment for a month and like not emerging outside. It's completely fine. That's (laughs) absurd.
1: Um so I I think our very last question we had is do you have any particular call to action that you would like to make people aware of?
2: yeah. uh, yeah. So, So amongst many such calls to action, here's one that I'll put out there. And this is a matter that Rachel and I talk about with With quite a bit of frequency. Uh, This call to action, in fact, takes the form of a very, very simple diagnostic routine that you can just put into your mind's autopilot. And I think if you're a certain kind of person, putting this into your day-to-day, week-to-week routine would be a huge plus. If you ever find yourself formulating a thought that takes the form or matches the template, if only blank, then I would be happy or I would be fulfilled or I would be satisfied. If you find yourself formulating thoughts of this format with any frequency, you may be potentially falling prey to the phenomenon of the the happiness treadmill where everything is all posed in terms of little bits of happiness that you grab onto because you've gotten to that next target. And for a lot of us folks who uh, have, you know, by great virtue and luck, enjoyed um, accomplishing a handful of things in our lifetime. There are a lot of folks in our shoes who have done this by successfully jumping through hoops and with some facility. So what I would encourage everybody who's listening, if you ever detect that you think in this mental pattern, think about also integrating into your day-to-day philosophy measurements and benchmarks of happiness and fulfillment that have absolutely nothing to do with, I did this thing because ultimately in life that's where uh happiness and fulfillment come from it it comes from doing fun meaningful things with with good people not necessarily whatever you have in your mind as the as the next thing on a checklist
1: interesting i'll think about that (laughs) i
2: yeah i'll say that i have you know i can remember back to uh, i feel like i fell prey to this all the time as a kid oh well if only I got a, a nice score on this test, then, you know, all my problems would be solved. But of course, that's that's certainly not the truth. And you can go through quite a bit of a career thinking, well, if only this this fellowship or that scholarship or this or that, or and some of the things are kind of contrived and there may, might be along the way a, a 5K time or a marathon time or a certain record in intramural football season. But if you have too many of these, thresholds in your life, and you're, you, you're using them as proxies for happiness or fulfillment, you might come to find, before you know it, that you don't have too much more you can realistically climb in the intramural football standings, and you still haven't quite seized onto that notion of happiness and fulfillment that you thought it would bring you.
0: Hmm,
1: very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, cool, well,
2: of that, that you wanted to
1: no, I'll sign on to that one. OK cool um thank you so much for joining us we had a lot of fun and for having us. a lot of us. yeah interesting insights so thank you it Sounds so good. so great to
2: see both of you
1: bye bye thank you so much everyone for listening and feel free to check out our instagram at the two body problem pod and our twitter at the two body prob pod
0: see you next time bye